0: but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with shipped, And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, uh Hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get shipped same-day delivery. Shipped, delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high. Nobody survives
1: this trajectory, so that's why I think it's important that, you know, I really appreciate you doing this interview.
2: This is Ben Clark. And the trajectory he's talking about is being an alpinist. Climbing mountains in the Himalayas that don't have names and carving roots where nobody has climbed. And he's right. A lot of people die living a life like his. Which makes you wonder, why is he doing it? And how do his parents deal with that, thinking their son's next climb could be his last? From New Hampshire Public Radio, this is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it, and I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Last week we talked about Tyler Armstrong, a 12-year-old kid who's planning to climb Mount Everest this spring, and if you haven't listened to it, you might want to go back and check it out, because today we're going to hear the story of an adult alpinist and how his parents back home cope with this high-risk, high-adventure lifestyle. This isn't so much a debate as a fireside tale, so take a seat. I'm going to let Megan Tan take it from here. As a kid,
1: I was a terrible athlete.
3: (laughs) Why? Why do you say that?
1: Well, I was really overweight and, you know, just kind of a chubby kid and, and husky, I think is what you probably would call it.
3: Ben is originally from Tennessee, and he didn't grow up hiking or rock climbing. As a 12-year-old, less than 5 feet tall, he weighed about 180 pounds, and no one predicted that he would be active. In fact, the doctors told him that instead of playing on his school's basketball team, he should probably be the manager.
1: Kind of bought in for about six months, and then I decided that, you know what, I had a body and I was going to use it anyway.
3: Ben slimmed down. When he was in college, he hiked the Appalachian Trail with his friends, spent the summer working at Yosemite Park, and by the time he was 19, he decided to climb Mount Rainier, one of the highest peaks in the Pacific Northwest.
4: Well, I thought it was wonderful that he was out outdoors and doing things.
3: This is Ben's mom, Ann.
4: I thought that was great. I mean, you know, when you send a young man off to college, there are lots of options they can get into. So I was relieved.
5: And then he just became a... Mountain climbing uh, guru, he, he summited Rainier now more than maybe 28 times.
3: And this is Jerry, Ben's dad.
5: Run up and down that thing like a billy goat.
1: Once I got there, I, I was hooked. Being in the mountains, that being in that environment, despite all of the adversity, that was, that was home.
3: In the beginning, Ben's parents didn't really think anything of his new fondness for hiking and climbing. But then Jerry received a phone call from him.
5: And uh, he called me on his cell phone that night from up on the mountain, and he said he'd been talking to this fellow and that he thought he ought to do Everest.
4: I looked at him one day, and I said, Ben, are you really thinking about that? And he said, no, no, not really. And I thought, oh, yes, you are.
3: (laughs) Anne's instincts were right, because when Ben was 21, he told his family he had a goal to be the second youngest American to summit Mount Everest. But his father, Jerry, was not having it. Oh,
4: man. <laughs> Let's just say Jerry was not the least bit encouraging.
5: <laughs> if he goes to Everest, he'll get killed. That's just the craziest thing I've ever heard of.
4: I mean, he just he just thought it was absolutely, you know, a totally irresponsible thing to do.
1: They cared That's why they were saying it. They weren't saying it because they didn't want to see me accomplish my dreams. They were saying it because they didn't feel it should cost me everything. But, you know, due to a lack of maturity and I would say emotional intelligence at the time, I didn't really hear I was completely fine with potentially risking my life to achieve a goal like that.
3: Why? How did you get to that point?
1: You know, I don't know. I guess that maybe at that age, I guess I didn't have the self-worth that maybe is important and I was looking for that. I was looking for who I I could be. I knew enough about what I could do and and what I thought and who I thought I was, but I've just always had a bent to see what I really can accomplish. So yeah, I just didn't really I don't think I had a good idea about risk at all at that time.
3: Once Ben's parents saw that his goal was manifesting into a plan, something switched in them.
4: He's going, accept it, get over it. Okay. At that point,
5: it shifted in my mind from do you dissuade him to go to now you got to support him to the hilt to make sure that it's successful.
1: When we finally reached the top, we reached it through really windy, really bad conditions. I was, you know, at the limit of exhaustion like anyone would be up there and literally just spent 20 minutes there. There was nothing esoteric or triumphant, nothing brilliant about it. It was just essentially, for me, that was the turnaround point on a five-year journey, and I realized that I had gotten there. It was the process was clearly the, the point and not that 20 minutes.
3: If Ben's parents thought his expedition to climb Mount Everest was risky, they were in for a big surprise because this was just the beginning. Everest had given Ben the alpine bug, which meant that he wanted to climb the highest, most remote and riskiest peaks in the Himalayas. Did you have to make sacrifices uh, to to put yourself in these situations with the people who were close to you?
1: The focus that, I've, that I have, that I developed, that I think is so important to executing Highly consequential life and death situations came with a level of detachment from every relationship around me, and that was mutual. I mean, my parents had to detach.
3: He said that, you know, the people around him he felt like had to disconnect themselves from him. Did you feel that way? Like you had. no, I just thought he's
4: off on another adventure.
3: I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't feel like that's the last time I'd seen him, no. But being an alpinist is dangerous. And you don't have to summit Mount Everest for something bad to happen. Risk is always there. Bad storms hit, climbers fall, people get sick. And when you're in the Himalayas, even a minor setback can turn into a life-threatening situation. In 2009, Ben and two of his friends set out for Mount Barunse. Their goal was to climb the mountain on one side in 17 days and then ski down it on the other side.
1: So you had to climb up this very narrow ridge up this northeast face of this mountain. At 21,600 feet, I looked across the valley and I looked at the south face of Lhotse, which is the mountain that is connected to Everest. And I watched what must have been about a three thousand foot tall gust, just a round gust, just hit that face. And it was this beautiful orange alpine glow, and just this totally unique to the Himalayas scale everything type of moment. And I just realized, living people do not see things like this.
0: <laughs> mm.
3: This beautiful moment that Ben is talking about was the calm before the storm.
1: We found ourselves, uh, you know, up on top of this bridge line, and there was a couple hours of chopping ice and just, you know, staying anchored into the mountain as best we could. It was really blustery, really windy, snow coming down all around us, the sun set, and we hoped we weren't going to get blown off that mountain.
5: And all of a sudden, the weather just crumped in, and... There were blinding snowstorms, and they were sitting in the tent.
1: And my feet were absolutely frozen, and so I had my feet pressed against John's stomach underneath his shirt, skin to skin, so that they would thaw out and avoid frostbite. While I held John's hands, he threw up in a Ziploc bag in between my legs, and that began the realization that we were now in a serious endeavor.
3: To make matters worse, as Ben and his friends sat in the tent trying to figure out what they should do, they realized there weren't many escape options.
1: We had committed to that route in a very bold fashion, meaning that we were willing only to fail up.
3: What did this mean? They didn't prepare the right kind of equipment to turn around and go back the way they came. And if they did decide to do that, it would be highly dangerous, and they most likely would not make it. Back home, Ben's parents knew what was going on. Jerry, Ben's dad, has always loved tracking the weather. He used to be a pilot. So ever since Everest, once Jerry decided he was going to support Ben's climbing, he figured he could do it by keeping tabs on the weather.
1: You know, I know he wanted to be patient and and inspire confidence, but one moment he lost it and he's like, I can't believe you would do anything where you couldn't reverse it.
5: Well, I just tried. I told him, you said, you got to get down, you know. There's not an option. You got to get down. You got to get this. You got to find the the best weather window we can find, and then you got to act. Uh, you can't sit there and die in that tent.
1: I think I was the last one to fall asleep around daybreak, and you know, just having this uh, this old Grateful Dead song actually rolling around in my head a bid you good night. And I just remember thinking that song and just singing it over and over my head thousands of times that night.
4: Lay down, my dear brothers Lay down and take your rest I want you to lay your head Upon your
3: Savior's
4: breast You just, you you feel so helpless because you can't do anything and you don't know what he can do to, to be any better off, but uh, as I say, I do a lot of praying.
3: What, what do you What do you say when you pray?
4: Ask that he be safe, that he get down safely, or whatever happens, that I have the strength to handle it. I think our prayers are answered, sometimes not the way we want them to be, so. I feel like however he came back, if he's injured, if he's in a hospital the rest of his life, uh, if he's missing a limb, you know, whatever happens, give me the strength and the resources to deal with it and not be resentful.
0: I love you,
4: but Jesus loves you the best. And I bid you good night. good night Good night Good
0: night I live by routines Especially my same day delivery routine With shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around I'm not scared I got my shopper on the way With all my favorites Shipt Delight in every delivery Learn more at Shipt.com
7: For the love of home.
1: We got back down to the glacier on day 10. And you know everyone in that whole valley thought we were dead.
3: You're hearing Ben's voice. So it's needless to say that they survived intact. But were you ever just like, I just want you to stop this?
5: Uh, yeah, we, we talked about that. But at that point in his life, he wasn't ready to stop.
3: You'd think that being trapped in a tent for five days on the side of a mountain with a 20,000-foot drop and then ice climbing down backwards, knowing that you could die, would change something inside of Ben. But it didn't. That same year, Ben lost four friends in four different climbing accidents.
4: You know, these were the best of the best, and they didn't come back, so... This luck isn't going to hold out forever. There aren't many old climbers.
3: One of those friends was Rob. He had been skiing down a mountain in Alaska when an avalanche buried him. Ben was there and was shocked because the series of events were unpredictable and he had lost a hero of his. But it wasn't until Ben met Rob's mother... Did he understand how the weight of Rob's actions and his actions affected the people who were closest to him?
1: Uh, She showed up to meet and and talk with his friends and, and to have this sort of this memorial, this wake. And she hadn't seen him, I think, in 10 years. And to see somebody who was learning everything about their child in reverse order, starting from the moment that the first time they had seen each other in 10 years being in his coffin in Manhattan at a morgue and just trying to figure out how he arrived at that point, who he had become, what he was. I stood there and just immediately all these tears just came right to the forefront and it was like, you know, all these... You know, these amazing summits and all these thousands of ski turns and these billions of stars we were staring at every night in these remote places. All that was just, just had to go. I'm essentially married to the mountains and I love them. But, you know, something has got to change. I've got to stop loving and caring so much about this.
3: And something did change. The same year that his friend passed away, Ben became a father and made the decision to retire after spending ten years in the Himalayas. But you don't have any you don't have any regrets, right?
1: No, I don't. I understand that Charlie, my son, dictates everything in my life and I'm here for him and my family. I mean I've all I want is to be a part of that that is so much more important to me, feeling loved, giving what love I have to give to other people, being emotionally available. All these things that I blocked out, um, are far more important than the next mountain I might top out. I've lived a lifetime already. It's cool.
3: If you were to want to take up mountaineering in the same capacity that you did, what would you do? You think?
1: You know, and Charlie, Charlie has the creativity that I have. You know, if we find that he has this need for focus and that he is drawn to the environments that I was drawn to, you know, that curiosity takes him to those places, as much as I will probably eat my own words admitting it, it's hypocritical of me to disagree with it on any front, you know. But just like my own parents, I will... Be awake at night, I'm sure, worrying just as much as anybody, because I love him. His love and and his being in this world awakened me in a way that nothing else ever was going to.
2: So this feels like a perfect place to end this story, right? Ben retires, starts raising a child, everything comes full circle. But, of course, you've heard the phrase, a parent's job is never done. Well, that's how Ann and Jerry feel.
4: You know, my attitude is, well, what's he going to do now? (laughs) And that's when he got into this ultra running and doing these, you know, Nolan's 14 and stuff.
2: Nolan's 14, by the way, is an ultramarathon where runners try to summit 14 separate 14,000-foot mountains in Colorado— in less than 60 hours. So Ben may have climbed down from the Himalayas, but let's just say he's not out of the woods.
3: So, so you haven't really exhaled as a parent yet?
2: No, we never will. Outside In was produced this week by Megan Tan, Taylor Quimby, and Maureen McMurray with help from me, Sam Evans-Brown, Logan Shannon, and Molly Donahue. We want to just give an extra big thanks to the whole Clark family, but especially to Jerry and Anne for opening up about their story. Our theme is composed by Breakmaster Cylinder, and we had original music composed for us by Uncanny Valleys. We tweet at Outside In Radio, and our website where we have posted a documentary that Ben Clark made about skiing out of helicopters in Haynes, Alaska, is OutsideInRadio.com. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. See you next time.